Greetings and welcome to the Cathartic Yardstick with your hosts, Ray and Mark. In this episode, your intrepid hosts talk about turning 60 and everybody's favorite topic, death. Turning 60 is a lot like being a haunted house. Creepy sounds and smells you just can't explain. Welcome to the Cathartic Yardstick Podcast. Uh, you're listening to Ray and Mark. Good evening, Mark. Good evening. And uh, what are we talking about tonight? Oh, this is great. Break out your popcorn, break out your noisemakers, your party hats. We're talking about aging and death. Ooh, aging <laughs> Ooh. and death. Yes. How fun is this? <laughs> so cool. Aging is an interesting thing, and it's also, in some respects, a very new phenomena. Um, aging is a new phenomena. It, well, well, aging this far and these aging numbers this far, the, the whole, um, the whole concept of old age and gerontology and what do you do in retirement is uh, is something I think that's relatively new with um, changes in economics, changes in healthcare. So that now, after your your working life, you have this whole other life you have to do. I have a stat. Let's hear it. America's elderly population has more than tripled in size over the last century. The share of the U.S. population over age 65 was roughly 4% in 1900, and now it's 14%, actually more than 14%. It was 14% in 2012. In 1900, the average life expectancy was less than 50 years old. Average life expectancy now is 78.7 years. Mm. Yes, yeah, so I guess in the past, you basically, you worked till you weren't physically able to work. And then you had, uh, you either <laughs> died shortly after that or... Or, or like while you were still working, I, I don't think uh, there wasn't this whole expectation that you retire and you have 20 to 30 years of retirement after working. That's right. And uh, if you look back on, on theories about uh, about gerontology, you go back to um, to Freud. Freud only had four stages. And, and the fourth one went all the way from uh, from puberty to to death. And uh, if you get to the more modern theories, uh, Eric Erickson, who we all learned about in, in social work school, had eight stages. But only the last two had to deal with your senior years. Well, not even your senior years. Uh, the last two were uh, what he called generativity versus stagnation, and that was your 40s to your mid-60s. And it's a time period when you either get stuck in a rut or you, you try to... He saw that as a time period when you, you try to improve yourself and the world around you. But his last stage, which is kind of typical, I think, of the thinking, uh, this was even as late as the 70s, is called integrity versus despair. And that goes from the mid-60s uh, on till, till death. And basically, he said the whole theme of this period in your life is you're either going to look back, think, I did, did what I wanted to do, I did a good job, and feel good about it. Or you're just going to have nothing but regret till you die, and that was pretty much it. So you've got these eight stages that cover a, a lot in the earlier parts of your life, but basically the last stage could be thirty years, mm -hmm. whereas the first six take up the first thirty years. So, right, yeah. Uh, so I, I think there wasn't a lot of consideration given given to old age. Well, re remember, 
you know, remember the, um, the, the wise observation of my idiot savant friend <laughs> who, <laughs> yes. who once, who, who turned around and said, remember at the end, you know, no wonder people have midlife crises and have trouble aging because biologically you're designed to reproduce, raise your young. And then once they're independent, your job is to die. And, and what we did is with medical science, we gave you another 30 or 40 years. So it's really no wonder you're fighting your DNA if you're basically saying, what's my purpose now? Yeah, right. good question. Right. Go find one. Uh, yeah, and we, we, there isn't really a lot, for uh, much of a role for, for older people, even in contemporary society. It's not like we have this this, this whole construct of, you know, uh, the, the older person who's wiser, who's uh, who's kind of the sage contributing to society. It's it's, it's like, all right, you, you did your time. Uh, here's your social security check. Go go play for a while. Right, and we could we could mobilize that demographic, but I think there's no there's no union steward. I mean, I'm sure there's some people that basically say, I've done my time in the barrel. I've worked, and now I want to spend my time fishing. And it's like, okay, good, you deserve it, but. For the you know for the rest of the people who basically say I'm at the top of my game, I don't want to work five days a week, but you know it's like okay, great, we'll mobilize you. You can do teaching, you can do a bunch of things, you know, but there's no there's no organization. I think that ropes you in to do that. Yeah, and I think there's also the tendency to to lump everyone over fifty five into a single group, like a single homogeneous group, which which they're not, and. Frequently, when I'm doing statistics at work, um, you know, we break things down, and it's like always 55 plus. Like, you know, this could cover people from 55 to 95, and it's it's as if they're a single unit and have all the same needs and uh, the same interests and the same problems, which they don't. I mean, things change, continue to change. It just doesn't stop at 55. That's true. That's true. As a matter of fact, you have more freedom. I mean, if you're, um, you know, when you're when you're young, you got really out of worry about putting food on the table and, and things like that. And in theory, you know, if you've gathered your, you know, your money together for retirement, your funding streams and whatnot, in theory, it really frees you up. You have a lot more freedom mm -hmm. to figure out what it is you want to do if you can if you can figure it out. Talk to me about turning 60. What do you think the significance is of turning 60, if any? I don't know. It, although this, you know, we both turned 60 uh, relatively recently. Um, hey, we, speak for yourself, man. <laughs> and uh, Don't be talking out of school about me. Oh, Jeez. okay. Wow. So, so, so it, it felt really different. And I can't think of a birthday that felt more different than this one. And I'm not sure why. And I'm actually kind of feeling old for the first time. And I caught myself last week sitting at work. So I was thinking, I'm thinking about changing jobs and applying for another job that I actually felt old and thinking, wow, I wish I was a little bit younger <laughs> looking for another job. What, what I notice, um, and, and I guess it's all very subjective. It depends what we're doing at particular times. Um, but, you know, I've been involved in some, you know, like private organizations and I'm running a, I'm running a, a program in my day job and whatnot. So it really feels like I'm on top of my game and I'm starting to develop what I'm doing on my off time to really, I'm very busy, but it's very rewarding. It's fun. Um, but what I'm noticing is, um, 
you know, everybody puts off aging. They put off death just because it's uh, depressing to think about. Um, but like when you when you hit twenty one, um, like it or not, you're an adult. I mean, you can be childlike, um, but you're an adult. I mean, chrono- it's it's a chronological milepost that you can't deny. Um, and what I find is when you're 40 or 45 or 50 or 52 or 54, you can sit there and go, how oh, I'm, I'm middle age. Mm-hmm. Um, you hit 60 and interesting things happen. One, it's a chronological milepost where, dude, you're a senior citizen. <laughs> that's, you know, that's kind of a pill to swallow. And the other one is the fact that we, we live our lives and we probably should um, because you don't want to obsess about you know the end Um, but we live our lives like we've got decades it's like there's no rush i mean you hit 60 and suddenly your co-pilot is is wearing a black robe a hood and carrying a scythe Mm -hmm. you know and somehow you got to get comfy with that and just sort of like go about your business and go yeah i named him i named him mort And he's my co-pilot and, you know, he's eventually going to take me out, but not today. Um, and, and so that, that's what I find is it's an adjustment, um, but not necessarily a bad one. And although my knees might hurt um, and stuff like that, I, mentally I do not feel old. I feel like I want to maximize my enjoyment. Yeah, I, uh, I'm finding also that, that – uh you know, that, that time limit starting to feel like, you know, I've got a limited amount of time. There's only so many things we can do and we got to do them now. And so we're thinking, dedicate well, yourself, dedicate yourself to podcasting. That's right. <laughs> so I went, went ahead and bought all that equipment. And then we're thinking, well, we've lived in this house for, for like 35 years and maybe be nice to try living in what we like to call a freestanding house. You know, we live in a attached townhouse. So and we think, well, it'd be nice to have a yard and, and have some you know, four walls instead of two. Uh, so Come to Virginia. Move in with us. Okay. That'd be fun. It'll be, it'll be, like, it'll be like the Golden Girls. It'll be great. <laughs> Except we'll just be like couples and we'll do like podcasting and stuff. It'll be great. All right. And the ladies can have their own podcast. Yeah. 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 Like what the hell's wrong with the guys? That's what, that's yeah. what it's called. <laughs> what were we thinking? Why are men so weird? So, uh, so yeah, look, looking at, at, at houses and, um, but then again, you know, do, maybe we should just stay and, and focus on traveling. I'm, I'm not sure what we want to do. And, and at work, I'm horribly, horribly, at work, I'm horribly burned out at my job, but do I want to just try to slog it out for another two years or do, do I want to look for something else? See jailing it episode. <laughs> yes. So, and for the first time, I'm actually doing a little bit of jailing it at my on my job, and yeah. I don't like it, and I think I need to, to move on. But but it's hard, and, you know, I'm in a position where I interview people for our, our office, and someone comes in, and they're a few years from retirement, and it's a position that we want to develop. I keep thinking, well, yeah, they're only, probably going to leave in a couple of years, and do we re- really want to do this and spend all the time training them just to have them retire? So I'm as guilty of, of ageism as, as anybody else. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, although I'm not sure that's ageism. You know, it's like yeah, 
in, in my in my book, it's sort of like if you say if you interview somebody with gray hair and you go, oh, they're really set in their ways. They they won't have new innovative ideas. That's probably ageism. But when you turn around and you're interviewing somebody who's sixty years old and you go, you know, they're probably going to work for like five years and retire. That's mm-hmm. called realism. You know, it's, I don't think it's ageism. Yeah, but they might not retire. I mean, there's nothing that says you have to retire. Yeah, That's true. 62 or 65 or Just 72. statistically, the odds would be they, much greater. They are. But, you know, we've hired young people for the same positions, and they end up with a better offer, and they leave after six months. Right. So, so you, you really true. don't know. That's true. You don't. So, so. we'll see. I, I don't know. Uh, it, it's opened up a whole bunch of possibilities, and it just seemed like things were pretty set for, for like 30, 35 years, and now all of a sudden we're we're back to the beginning where the, you've got to decide a new path. You know, Ray and I used to have conversations where this is not the first time Ray has talked about, you know, buying a new house. And I can distinctly remember having a conversation with Ray along the lines of what, what the hell are you thinking? I mean, you got to do you got to do what's right for you, but what the hell are you thinking? You got this, you know, this great house, you've raised a family, and nothing's paid for. You know, most people downsize at this age. You know, you're going you're gonna to get a bigger house. What the hell are you thinking? Well, I retire from the military, and through a series of interesting things, I build this cavernous hangar of a house. <laughs> part, part, of it, part of it was just because the way houses are here in northern Virginia, and the other part is I don't really understand square footage. <laughs> so it's like when they start, like, after you've committed yourself to a housing plan, and you see the footprint, and you go, dear God. <laughs> I could have like three couples living here. And so, uh, but what I would say is the advantage for you in terms of retirement is if you've been living in the same place for 35 years and your house is paid for, it's like, wow, I'm going to be paying this mortgage until I'm 130, you know? So that's pretty nice having a paid up mortgage. It is nice. And, and when we bought the house, that was kind of our plan all along was to, you know, any amount of money we had, we, we put towards the mortgage, extra principal payments. So it used to drive my in-laws crazy. They give us money for like Christmas or birthdays and we just pay it into the house instead of buying something or going out. But, you know, it worked out that we paid off the house, I think 10 years before the mortgage was, was up. So oh, wow. we paid it off 10 years yeah. early and uh, in time to then, you know, kind of do pay as you go for uh, college. And uh, wow. so it worked out well. Yeah, because I, I hear paid up house. I think freedom, freedom and, and yeah, freedom of choice really in uh, in retirement. Um, because part of my big mathematics is going to be how do I retire in such a way where I just continue paying the mortgage, right? <laughs> so, because the, the, what the theory is is I'll leave the house to to my children. So, so they can pay off the mortgage. So they can pay off the <laughs> right. mortgage, yeah. But hopefully most of it will pay, pay it off. Hopefully I'll linger around here. Yeah, but we, uh, you know, we, we bought this 80s house, and this is very typical of the houses that were built in the 80s. It's, 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 it's not great. It's very simple. It's, got, it's on a slab foundation. So there's, there's no basement. The, the floor downstairs is, is freezing in the winter. I um, like it. We've, we've got a heat pump. Um, <laughs> so... I, I don't know. Um, yeah. Michelle and I have always wanted an old house, a cool old house. So, ooh, maybe it's haunted. Get an old haunted house. We could do more podcasts. That'd be cool. 
I tell you, you know, I, I'd take the ghost if it proved that there was uh, life after death. That would be worth it. Yeah, how come it says red rum on my mirror? <laughs> what is that about? Mm-hmm. So, but anyway. So that's, that's kind of a nice segue into uh, death. 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 Well, death. time is the school in which we learn. Time is the fire in which we burn. Delmore Schwartz. Wow. That sounds yeah. familiar. Yeah. It's, uh, it was used in Star Trek. Okay, that's where I heard so. it. That's where I get all my great quotes from. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but I cheat. That's all right. And I got another good Star Trek quote for the end. Okay. But uh, <laughs> it's a good bookend, bookend the theory. But anyways, I've been working on an interesting uh, project. What, I, what my siblings and I were talking about was the idea that you have family, I'll call them family heirlooms, not necessarily of monetary value, but perhaps of of emotional value. And what we've really seen is that if you're not really careful making sure that people who things are going to actually make it there, um, somebody else is liable to clean out the house, not realizing the value of something and just getting rid of it and, and time is lost. And so what we were doing was we were taking these photo albums that somehow miraculously survived uh, my parents' death and you know cleaning out the house and whatnot. And these photo albums uh, go back to the 1910s. And so what I've been doing is collecting the photos, uh, digitizing them, running them through some software to like repair tears, tears and creases and whatnot, and then uploading them on Flickr uh, so that the family can enjoy them. And they're up on the cloud and they're digitized and protected. But it really got me thinking. I mean, instead of having a photo album where you spend maybe, you know, five seconds looking at each picture, when you're restoring them, you're spending between 15 minutes and an hour on each photo. And so you're really looking at it, thinking about it. And it's fascinating. It shows you like how quickly lifetimes pass by, uh, what your parents w- looked like when they were teenagers dating, and then what their parents looked like back then. Well, now you're older now than their parents were then. And lifetimes go by very quickly. And you look in the newspaper. The other thing I did was I, I went to newspapers.com and uh, you know took a trial pers- uh, subscription and started looking through family names. And I created another photo album full of you know relatives in the news. And um, and you realize that for most people, um, you'll have like a graduation announcement, uh, a birth announcement, and that's about it. And so it just underscores how transient all this is. We worry about things, but it's a very short trip. And are you making the most of it? Uh, yeah, it's it's interesting you mention that because uh, I'm going to be st- spending two days next week uh, cleaning out my mother's attic. Ooh, cool. Watch for those college photos. Uh, I will be looking for them. Um, There's a, a few I care passionately about. <laughs> it, it's interesting that... Uh, um, my uh, my father bought a, bought our, the first house he ever owned, basically so his parents would have some place to live. They had rented their whole lives, and they were getting older and uh, didn't have any place to go. So he had get, gotten out of World War II and used his GI loans to, to buy a house. He was the first person. Well, his brother and him were the first people in the family to, to own a house. Hmm. So... But his parents weren't in great health, and unfortunately, they they died before my parents even met. 
So my father boxed up everything, and it's in that attic. So this is stuff that no one's unboxed. Oh wow! Uh, since like the the late fifties. Wow, treasure trove. Yeah, and I'm going there because my mother has no great attachment for for my grandparents' stuff. I mean, she never even met them. So I'm going down there just to go through everything and try to you know save stuff from the fire, basically. Sure. No, I think that's 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 critical. Um, but as I was going through all my photos, and we'll see how this dovetails with your experience. You know, I was talking to my sister about it, and um, and I was just making the observation that I don't know how it was with your parents, but I don't think the older generation really talked much about I don't know midlife crisis or or what am I going to do when I'm sixty or how am I dealing with age or let's talk about the issues I had from World War II. So they were very stoic, yeah. very, very very quiet, and they kind of suffered quietly. And so when I was talking to my sister, you know, I was just talking about the idea about um, we have this common life experience. I can talk about a house we had in the 50s or 60s, and they'll know what I'm talking about. But if we, I mean, of course, being living things, we could all drop in different orders of different things. But if we go chronologically, there will be a time when all those experiences exist only between my two ears. I'm the sole custodian mm-hmm. on the planet of those experiences. And that is, it's a combination in my mind of being one, totally natural, and two, completely bizarre and unacceptable. And I remember I asked my sister, I said, you yeah, this is n- no different reality than what our parents had, their parents, their parents. But yet nobody talked about it, really. And then we got into the discussing about it could be because those previous generations were just so much more comfortable with the end of the runway. Um, death. It's like, well, of course. you know, Of course, I'm the, the sole custodian. Whereas now, we've gotten so far away from the particulars of death. We typically don't stare at it face-to-face anymore that we start worrying about all these other, other tangential things that our previous generations maybe didn't worry about so much. Uh, yeah, I think there's also, we both grew up French Catholic and there was definitely a tendency in in that, uh, line of thought that this life didn't really matter. Uh, So you just kind of do your time and you're, you're in a way you're kind of jailing it. Um, Oh my gosh. Waiting for the next life. Uh, you mean the next life is going to be even better? That's right. How, that, how that's, cool that's, is that's that? That's what we're taught. You know, suffering yeah. was good. It didn't really matter. You know what, what happened here. It was all like your eternal reward. That was was the key. And I don't think that that thought is around anymore. I think th- there's much more of a feeling that this life matters. What happens now matters. You know, um, you've got to make the most of your time because it's limited and you've only got one shot. And it's a gift, mm-hmm. you know, so enjoy the gift. Um, I was looking around and gathering thoughts, and, and, and um, you know, it's really for the most of, for the bulk of human history, medical science really couldn't do much to hold off death. Child mortality was really high. Um, my mom lost a younger sibling to diphtheria. My mom had diphtheria. Mm-hmm. And I remember her, her telling me that here she is with diphtheria and her windpipe is closing up. 
and they call the local general practitioner who makes house, call, house calls. And it, the only thing he could really do was dangle her head off the edge of the bed to try to keep the windpipe as open as possible. And that's wow. about that. That's about it. But um, you know, the mortality rates in the general population were much higher. People were cared for at home if they were sick. People died at home. The wakes were held uh, held at home. And the deceased was tended to by family. So death was really a fact of life that everybody was intimately familiar with on a direct and personal level. But dying like being born was generally a family, communal, or religious event, not so much a medical one. But then with advancements in medical science, illness and death has really become more remote, more institutionalized. So people have less firsthand experience. So... um, the stat I pulled up was that um, you know science has really distanced distanced the final stage of life from the rest of the living. So in 1949, about 50 percent of deaths occurred at home, and by 1980, uh, about 74 percent of deaths occurred in medical institutions. Yeah, I, I can I can really see that that happening that trend. Uh, yeah. You know, death became uh, almost a clinical thing. You know, you just go into the hospital to die, and there's like no consideration for the process. And, and some of that started turning around in like the the early '70s uh, with the work of uh, Elizabeth Kubler Ross. You know, the, the the classic book on death and dying, where it became much more of a process. And you know, she had this you know the stages of um, oh, stages of grief. Uh, she had the stages of grief. You know, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. Right. And. That's really kind of framed a, a lot of I think what we we've, we've have uh, have now. It, it's not the, go. Oh, I was going to say, aren't those also the the stages of jailing it? <laughs> jailing it, yes. Those are the stages of jailing it. No, and uh, it's uh, I think it's kind of also moving death out of that you know church to uh, hospital more into a, a psychiatric realm. More, more interpersonal realm, because she she also started talking. She was one of the first people that started talking about um, near death experiences, which is kind of interesting. Uh, which again is kind of pulling uh, death and life away from the the church and and more towards uh, the individual. So uh, I I don't know. I think it's it's come around a little bit, but but still, it's uh, I can remember as a kid people having these you know huge wakes and, and formal funerals, and that doesn't seem to happen too much anymore. Uh, people are going much simpler. It's not quite the big send off it used to be. So I don't think there's anything um, anything wrong with concentrating on the now. I think that's a that's a great focus of making the most of of, of our time. And um, what I'll do is I'll toss out that other great Star Trek quote. So I think it hits it like right on the nose, this, the kind of stuff we, we wonder about. But, uh, you know, the same, the, there was one character in this Star Trek movie who basically talked about, you know, time is the school in which we learn, time is the fire in which we burn. And uh, it was Captain Picard who basically says, someone once told me that life was a predator that stalked us all our lives. But I rather believe that time is a companion who goes with us on the journey and reminds us to cherish every moment because they'll never come again. And what we leave behind is not as important as how we lived. And so it's all about the journey. And and I think that focus is a healthy one. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's uh, it was interesting researching this. There isn't a lot out there um, uh, on gerontology or, or death or attitudes towards death. People just, I think, don't want to think about it too much still. Don't want to deal with it. Yep. Uh, it, it's seen as uh, almost as a failure. <laughs> you know, the longer you can stay alive, you're succeeding. As soon as you've, you've died, you're a failure in some respect. Well, at least I'll, I'll have a purpose to basically show you of what I can do using my free will I have after death. Oh, I don't think that I, I well, I, we'll see. <laughs> imagine, imagine this. Imagine spending eternity with me, like, pantsing you and saying, <laughs> free will, boom, <laughs> stop it, free will, ping. <laughs> oh, see, that time I didn't pants you, free will. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> stop it. Eternity. You've been listening to the Cathartic Heuristic Podcast, where the only certain things are death and my inability to say, Sir Garbox. Hey, I said it. Of course, for sure, the Pope, there was no sex on earth either. Mortgage yourself to the hilt and then, oopsie. <laughs>